Open Robotics with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Welcome to the RoboHub podcast. Today we'll be hearing from Brian Gurkey, CEO of Open Robotics. He spoke to our interviewer Audro about ROS and Gazebo, two open source products widely used in the robotics community. ROS, which stands for Robot Operating System, is a set of software libraries and tools that help you build robot applications. Gazebo, a 3D robotics simulator, makes it possible to rapidly test algorithms, design robots, perform regression testing and train AI systems using realistic scenarios. Gerke discussed how ROS and Gazebo are used in robotics and shared with us some of the key design decisions for ROS and the newer ROS2. Hi, welcome to RoboHub's podcast. Hi, Adro. Nice to be here with you. Would you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Brian Gerke. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Open Robotics. And tell me about Open Robotics. What do you? What's the motivation behind the company? So we started Open Robotics uh, now six and a half years ago with the goal of making it the hub of the open source robotics community. We had previously... Uh, Several of, us, several of us have been working at Willow Garage, where we've been developing ROS, the robot operating system, as well as Gazebo, which is a robot simulator that's often used with ROS. And we had built up what we felt like was enough critical mass in the robotics industry worldwide that it made sense to have uh, a company that would be dedicated specifically to developing and supporting those open platforms. And so that's why a few of us left Willow Garage back in 2012 and set up Open Robotics. Hmm. Would you tell me about ROS, like a high-level overview of it? Sure. So ROS, uh, well, first of all, it stands for the Robot Operating System, and that's already a misnomer because it's not, strictly speaking, an operating system. It is uh, rather a software development kit is, a, is the right way to think about it. It's, it's a set of software tools and libraries that you can use to build robot applications. So it includes the pieces that you need to specify a robot system, to launch it, to tear it down, to debug it, to visualize it, to log data, play back data, as well as libraries that impl- implement commonly needed capabilities from, uh, say, indoor navigation for a mobile robot to motion planning for a robot arm to calibration and and many other commonly needed uh, capabilities. And so what it's used for is uh, building robot applications that can vary all the way from the original use case we had in mind, which was supporting scientific experimentation in labs. But now it goes all the way to the other end of running robots that are in production on a 24-7 basis. Gotcha. And how does it work? I mean, it's a very broad question, but just generally, what are the paradigms of it? 
Sure. So ROS at its core is uh, often what's often called a middleware. It's a messaging bus that allows you to build a distributed system where you have components that exchange messages with each other. <clears throat> we follow a methodology that's uh, called publish-subscribe. It's an asynchronous way of organizing communication among a di distributed system of components. So those are, and that, that reflects essentially our philosophy. We believe that these robot control system problems are best tackled by constructing a distributed system that separates the different components so that your device driver software is independent of your sensor processing uh, algorithms, which are independent from your planning algorithms, which are independent from your control algorithms, and so on. So those those pieces are why, best built. Why is that important? Why is it important to have that modular setup? That's a great question, uh, because, and, and in fact, it's a fair question in that uh, there are, in some cases, some efficiencies that you might gain by abandoning that modularity and rather rolling everything into a single monolithic application. And if you have a very, mm -hmm. very narrow fixed use case, that might actually be the best thing for you, and maybe ROS is not what you need. But if you think about it uh, over the longer term, and if you imagine that you're going to broaden out the applications you're tackling, then it's really important to have a separation of concerns uh, so that you, for development efficiency, for maintenance efficiency, for the ability to test those components and convince yourself that they work correctly, as well as for fault isolation at runtime. So that if, for example, there's a bug in your uh, sensor processing algorithm and it takes down that one process, it doesn't tear down the rest of your system. And maybe you can just restart that process and then keep the robot moving. Mm -hmm. It also helps it run on a bunch of different robots too, correct? That's absolutely right. You, we, we get reuse through uh, the fact that we build these components uh, independently with well-defined interfaces. And we, they are released by us and by uh, many, many others in the community as packages that can be cherry-picked and installed and then launched as part of a robot system. So if you, if you were to start working on a robot today, it's very likely that the sensors and actuators that you are going to build that robot from, there probably already exist ROS drivers out there that would allow you to access that hardware and then present the data from those sensors in standard message formats and then take the commands for those actuators in standard message formats. So you can take those pieces, reuse them, and then start to also very likely reuse the components that fit in between to do the sensor processing, planning, and control. Mm -hmm. Just to make it a bit more tangible, would you describe what it looks like on a, maybe a more simple robotics platform? So where something is touching ROS and then what it's sending to something else touching ROS and this kind of thing? Sure. So, you know, our, our canonical use case is the TurtleBot. This is a, a simple mobile robot platform that my uh, colleagues, uh, Tilly Foote and Melanie Wise, developed back in circa 2010, I would say, back at Willow Garage. At the time, they took an iRobot Create base and then added a, a simple netbook and a Microsoft Connect as a sensor. That's evolved through a couple of different iterations. Now you can get the TurtleBot uh, 3 in a couple of different formats. Uh, they're uh, actually built and sold by Robotis. But the thing that ties all of those platforms together is that they're small, they're for robots, low cost, and they're aimed at education and research. And uh, so what happens with the software on a TurtleBot, any of them really, 
is you've got uh, some kind of sensor that's giving you information about the world. These days we're using uh, either some low-cost LiDARs or a, a depth camera like an Intel RealSense. So there's a driver that is talking to that sensor. It takes in the data. Uh, it might The simplest thing to do is to just, for example, take that depth data and represent it as a, in fact, convert it to be a laser scan so it looks like you've got this 2D slice through the world. And that data then flows into a, uh, um, say, a SLAM system that is going to keep track of where the mm -hmm. robot is in the world. As and that's simultaneous localization mapping. That's exactly So that's right. figuring out where you are while building the map. Exactly right. Okay. And to do that, you need to take in the data from a sensor, like an Intel RealSense, uh, mm -hmm. uh, as well as odometry. So that's that's counting the uh, wheel rotations. So you're taking in, you've got sensors on the, on the wheels that are telling you how many times they've turned over. You take that data together with the data from a sensor that's observing the world, and between the two, you can decide where you are in the world as well as build a map. And mm -hmm. this was a this was a very hard research problem uh, up to you know approximately 15 years ago, but at around that time, the research community came up with a couple of really really good solutions to it. And that's this is a place where Ross shines is we're able to take those best-in-breed solutions that are already well-established in the literature and in some cases have already been implemented and basically package them up for reuse in the community. So this means that you are able to uh, basically start with the assumption that your robot is able to drive around and build a map of its environment, which 15 years ago mm -hmm. would have been a completely revolutionary concept. So then you go from having the TurtleBot uh, example, it's, it's able to observe its world, it can keep track of where it is, it builds a map, and mm -hmm. then you tie that together with a navigation system where again, we're combining uh, the, the best in breed solutions for uh, global planning. So if I want the robot to go from one place to another, I designate the goal and then there's a global planner that decides at a high level how to get there. And then as mm -hmm. it actually executes that plan, it needs to do local planning or local control where it's actually uh, computing velocities to send to the motors and that's trying to keep it close to the global plan as well as away from obstacles. And then that eventually results in velocity commands that go to another device driver that go down to the motors. So that you close that whole loop and you get a robot that can keep track of where it is, it can get from point A to point B and it can do so while not running into things. And that's and mm -hmm. the you know that that's the low watermark for a, a mobile robot these days, and and thankfully because we've managed to uh, produce this fantastic open source software ecosystem that's contributed to by all these people all over the world, that's something you can take for granted. Mm -hmm. Now, how does this look from a researcher's standpoint when they're using ROS to set up a problem like this? What does it look like, given that they use these packages and then they make their contribution? So when uh, it's probably helpful to think back to when we were first building Ross, we were working on the PR2, uh, or Personal Robot 2. This is mm -hmm. a robot that Willa Garage developed. It's a mobile manipulation platform. I can see one right behind you, in fact. And it's a, uh, so it's a mobile robot with a lot of sensors, and it's got two arms, and it was intended as a, as a research tool. Uh, you can think about it, you know, I have to think about robotics as, it's uh, akin to experimental uh, physics. You need 
like a like a physicist or an astronomer, say, needs a telescope, a roboticist needs a robot with which to do experiments to try to make new discoveries. So in that sense, the PR2 was meant to be an instrument for researchers to use. But we didn't want to just send uh, these robots out into the world and then have researchers all in parallel build up approximately the same software stack to make the robot do what they wanted. So instead, we built Ross uh, with the idea that it would be the baseline that everyone would start with. And that means that in a lab, you've got a, you, you have a robot and it already can do indoor navigation as I described. It can do motion planning for its arms. It's got some kind of object recognizer built into it. Uh, and the idea is that you as a researcher get to focus on your uh, particular, often fairly narrow area of interest. If you're, if you're a researcher, you probably care about uh, one fairly narrow thing very, very deeply. And so you don't want to be distracted by building and uh, developing all the supporting infrastructure around that area. What you'd rather do is have a robot that basically is functional as it is. And then, for example, if your interest is in object recognition, you can swap out the component that does that and build in your own. And that's where you are making your scientific contributions. So our, the ideal use case for us, for researchers, is that they are able to take the components that exist uh, already out there in the open source community, uh, either add in or swap in their particular contribution, and then what results is a, a better system, and then that's what allows them to report on their results. So they, they focus on what they want to focus on rather than building up all of the tools required because they get to use what other people have contributed. That, that's exactly right. That's, you know, we, we say we want to stop reinventing the wheel in the research community. And that, that goes all the way from the, the tools that you use to the, the commonly accepted solutions to problems, uh, especially if they're the problems, they're not the problems rather that you're interested in solving. Mm-hmm. Now, how does Ross, well, actually, what, um, is there anything else that exists that's similar to Ross? Is Ross the only in its kind for robot middleware? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, there are, there are many systems out there. Uh, in fact, when I was in graduate school, I, we started a project that became called the player project. So there's a there's a still a piece of software out there called Player, which is itself a robot middleware that includes uh, some drivers and some algorithms. Um, that's uh, it's also open source. There are other open source options such as Yarp, LCM, Moose. Um, they are in some ways similar uh, to ROS, in some ways different. Each has tends to have its own strengths. Uh, perhaps there's the Moose example, MOOS, is uh, very commonly used for underwater vehicles. It has some particular characteristics that make it uh, suitable for environments where you have very low bitrate communications, such as acoustic modems that are used underwater. So there are absolutely those, those systems that are out there. I think it's fair to say at this point that ROS is the most popular, at least given the data that we're able to collect on the use of these systems. Mm-hmm. And Importantly, uh, 
for any of those other systems that are out there, you will very likely find a bridge to ROS. And so it's it's really not either or, you're likely using both. And uh, like a common use case is you've got your own middleware that's very, very good for your particular application, and that's great, and you should absolutely use it, but you might want to reach into the toolbox that comes from the ROS community to take, for example, Arviz, which is a very powerful 3D data visualizer. And so you might build or use a bridge from that other system to get your data into Arviz because that helps you to have a better understanding of what the robot's doing so that you can build and debug the control systems. Mm-hmm. What are some other features of ROS that are useful? So you, now you've mentioned Arviz. Um, from my own experience, bags are very useful for logging. Uh, would you tell me a bit about some of the other features? Sure. So uh, bags or ROS bags, as we call them, are the that, that's how you do data logging in ROS. So that's how you take uh, any of the messages that are produced in the system, very often sensor data, but it could be other messages that uh, are the processed results of sensor streams or commands that are being sent or diagnostic information. You're able to log all that to a file and then play it back later as if it we're a live system, and that allows you to test the software uh, against the uh, the log data. There are a number of uh, visualization and introspection tools, and there are graphical versions like Arviz allows you to take in all these different data streams and then render them in uh, a visually understandable way in any coordinate frame, which is a powerful concept. Nice. Uh, they go from that end to, you know, there are there are 2D plotting tools, there are graphical tools that can show you the all the different components in the system that are running. I mentioned earlier it's a distributed system with separate, usually separate processes that are talking to each other. So you can visualize all those processes and you can see who's talking to whom about what. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the in the non-visual side, there's a whole suite of very powerful command line tools. So if you're familiar uh, with with using a Unix or Linux environment, you'll find many uh, small command line tools that allow you very quickly to introspect a system, get data out of it, uh, even uh, inject data into it. So it, from a command line, it's uh, very straightforward to explore a ROS-based system and find out what's going on as well as modify it. Mm-hmm. Now, what are some limitations of ROS? Well, uh, ROS, as it has existed for the last uh, 11 or so years, is primarily used on Linux and more so primarily used on Ubuntu Linux. So that has historically been one limitation. While it is possible to use ROS on other, it has been possible in the past to use ROS on other platforms, it's uh, so commonly used on Ubuntu Linux that if you try to go to another platform, you're going to have some extra work to do, for sure. Uh, that's certainly one limitation. That I will say that's changing. Um, in fact, uh, just this week, Microsoft announced uh, that they've got support for ROS 1 on Windows, uh, as well as Gazebo. Exciting. So, yeah, that's great. Um, I guess, you know, another limitation would be that ROS is designed for an environment that has... A decent amount of computation. So if you are, you know, we originally designed it for the PR2, which carries a, a, a pair of heavy-duty servers in the base. And, and so for that use case, it's fantastic. If you go all the way to the other end and you're talking about building, say, 
a probably like a more like a single purpose, very, very low power, uh, bare metal microcontroller based robot, then it's not that Ross is exactly too heavyweight to run there. It's just that uh, you could probably come up with something more efficient for such a narrow use case. And so mm-hmm. there's a sweet spot for Ross where you are, uh, there's enough flexibility in what you intend to do with the system and you have enough uh, resources that the abstractions that are built into Ross are able to provide you some benefit. Mm-hmm. And now would you tell me about Gazebo? Sure. So Gazebo is interestingly a project that predates Ross by about eight years. It actually grew out of the, the player project back at USC. Andrew Howard was the original author of that. And uh, then Nate Canning uh, joined the lab and worked with Andrew extensively on it. Nate is now my one of my co-founders at Open Robotics. Gazebo is a 3D physics-based robot simulator. So if you've ever done any robotics development, you know that the, the, the work of developing and testing your code is made all the more difficult by having to interact with the hardware, which may be uh, rare, expensive, fragile, uh, sometimes broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the having it's really important to have a simulator that allows you to develop and test your software uh, just without access to the hardware. And so that's what that's that's the one of the purposes that Gazebo serves. It's a, you can think about it as akin to the emulator that comes with an Android or iOS. Uh, development environment where you've written your application and without access to the phone, you can run it all in software. So that, that's what Gazebo is doing for you. Uh, if you run it, it looks like it kind of looks like a, let's call it an older video game. Uh, you've got a 3d environment. Uh, you've, uh, you've got, um, objects in that environment that have visual as well as physical characteristics, and you've got one or more robots. Uh, we can simulate a wide variety of robots. We, you know, It started with uh, ground robots that are wheeled. Uh, we've done a lot of work on legged robots, especially humanoid robots, uh, as part of a project we did with the DARPA Robotics Challenge as well as the NASA Space Robotics Challenge. More recently, there's been a lot of interest in uh, simulating cars as well as drones. And so the, the approach we take with Gazebo is we, we go at it from first principles. We're simulating physics as well as doing synthetic sensor generation. And so we put together a toolbox of different kinds of sensors, different kinds of joints. And then from those pieces, you can model just about anything that you're likely to put build into a robot. And now you've got a, a 3D environment in which to move that robot around. And then on the outside, uh, we support a ROS interface to that simulation so that if you control your robot using ROS, you can test your whole ROS-based control stack against simulations to hardware. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a little bigger than a simulator, if I understand, uh, because of the sensors and everything. And it also uses several simulators you have the option to anyway so you can use ODE which is one simulator or um, some of the other ones yeah I guess that's a question of of terminology Um, we usually refer to gazebo as a simulator and then ODE or open dynamics engine is a physics engine we would call that a physics engine yeah so that's that's doing one particular aspect of simulation which is basically 
solving physics. So given, given the environment, given constraints, given forces that are being applied, uh, what are, what's the next state in the world? And that's, that's what engines such as, such as ODE, Dart, Bullet, and Simbody, which are four different physics engines that we support under the hood, that's what they do. And so what Gazebo is doing, it's not, it's absolutely not its own physics engine. We're relying on those engines and, and then we're adding to those, the ability to, uh, do synthetic sensor generation as well as doing all the other stuff there's there's a there's a large amount of uh user facing tools and integration work that has to happen to really build all that into a usable robot simulator Mm -hmm. gotcha and then now so this is ross we've talked about ross and we've talked about gazebo ross one specifically we've talked about how does ross two fit in with these two yeah, so ROS2 is a project that we embarked on uh, several years ago, and we uh, it's it's essentially a rewrite of ROS1 from the ground up, and that is a, mm-hmm. uh, a non-trivial thing to do. It's uh, I look back on it sometimes as a, a somewhat painful decision because it's a it's it's certainly a time-consuming and difficult thing to do, uh, but I I'm very happy that we've done it because. <clears throat> We're now already starting to see the benefits. So, so what? Did, why did we make this decision in the first place? Uh, if we uh, think back to that original use case we had in mind for Ross One, it was a grad student in a lab doing new science, and somewhat unintended, Ross One uh, came to be something that was used in production as well. So, there are there are many companies out there that are shipping Ross One based robots today. They're, they're absolutely being used in warehouses and factories and supermarkets and a number of other settings. But along the way, we got feedback from uh, a lot of stakeholders in the industry who told us, you know, we use ROS for prototyping, but for a variety of reasons, we don't take it, we don't take it into production. Uh, we're going to switch to something else before we ship our product or offer our service. And, we, and there are many dimensions to that you know that question of why didn't they take it into production we took all of that feedback in and decided that right sure so uh, a couple of examples are support for uh, real-time computation Uh, if you want to have timing guarantees in your system you have to be very careful about how you uh, handle memory management how you uh, have use system calls. There are a number of sort of guardrails you have to build into the system to allow uh, real-time safe operation. And that's something that ROS1 uh, at its core was never really going to handle very well. And that's something that we're building ROS2 from the ground up specifically to support. Uh, there was also an interest in pushing into smaller systems. I mentioned earlier that if you've got a, a very simple microcontroller-based system, ROS may not be appropriate. Well, ROS2 may be appropriate. There's uh, active efforts to get ROS2 down onto uh, pieces of it into small microcontrollers. Um, there's also interest in uh, higher-level concepts like security. So ROS1, by design, has no security. There's, there's absolutely no control once you're on a ROS1 network. There's no control over uh, what data can be accessed and to whom you can talk about what. So taking all those in, into account, we decided that the right thing to do was rather than iterating on ROS1 in place, given both the, 
the long history it already had and the way it had been developed, as well as the important place that it occupies in the community. We didn't want to disrupt that. We want to keep supporting Ross One because we have a lot of people using it every day. We decided the right thing to do was to build Ross Two. Uh, and build it in a way that would meet those use cases that weren't satisfied by ROS1. And these are use cases that include uh, automotive, they include some industrial automation uh, applications, uh, aerospace. So these are, you know, this feedback was coming from folks who are, you know, they're, they're prototyping autonomous cars using ROS, but they don't see how to get from there through a certification process to production. And um, that's exactly what we want them to do with ROS2. Mm-hmm. Now, what design paradigms have changed between ROS1 and ROS2? The, the underlying paradigm of publish-subscribe messaging remains the same. But rather than use uh, the bespoke PubSub, as it's called, system that we developed for ROS1, in ROS2, we're relying on uh, something called DDS, or the Data, Data Distribution Service. This is a standard uh, for published subscribed middleware systems that was developed by a consortium of groups in industry and is now maintained by OMG, or the Object Management Group. It uh, specifies all the different ways in which the actors in a PubSub system might interact. Uh, it has many, many more features than we were ever going to build into our own system that we came up with for ROS1 that have to do with, for example, quality of service, being able to specify that a uh, one data stream is more important than another, or one data stream should uh, get there as fast as possible, but never try to resend any messages. All these features that were really well thought out and put into the specification, those are things we were never going to build in ROS1. So... Part of it is that being able to use those new features, but part of it is also, frankly, it's a communication benefit. It's being able to say to a serious you know, product manager in a company who's considering using this tool, when they say, well, how does it work and why does it work that way? We can say, well, we're using this accepted industry standard as opposed to we built this system ourselves because we thought it was a good idea and it seems to work in practice. Uh, so even if you ignore whether one is technically better than the other, there's a, it, you can't ignore the communication benefit of being able to point to, uh, using a standard. Mm-hmm. And then one other thing that I read from a blog post and you've kind of spoken about, uh, using open source libraries that are quite mature rather than rewriting the function yourself. So you were speaking about using the standard a bit ago, but then also using tools that someone else has built so you don't have to maintain as much code, this kind of thing. Can you speak on that's this? Absolutely, yeah, that's absolutely right. So we're, uh, you know, whenever possible, we're using um, the existing components that are out there. And, and these come from, um, these are both libraries that are developed by others, as well as just new features that get rolled into the tools that we're able to use. So another thing that's changed since we built ROS1 is that, for example, C++ and Python have both evolved quite a lot. And that means that by starting over today, we're able to use features from C++11, and I think in some cases 14 and maybe 17. And we can start with the assumption that we're using Python 3.5 instead of 2.7. And so uh, being able to make those sorts of assumptions uh, allows us to maintain, to use more modern features as well as maintain less code ourselves. 
Gotcha. And can you tell me a bit about moving the user community over from ROS1 to ROS2? Absolutely. So the uh, ROS2 has been under development now, as I mentioned, for several years. Starting in 2016, we, we started making alpha releases of ROS2. Of ROS and we made beta releases uh, in 2017. And then at the end of 2017, we did our first codenamed release, Ardent Apollone. And what we were communicating to, the, to our users at that point is, we think there's enough here that we're stamping this with a version. We're giving it a name. It has a logo. We're making an announcement around it. So it's, it's something that you should come and take a look at. Um, now, at that point, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't fully featured if you were to compare it to ROS1. Um, but that was telling the community that we're now on this path where we're going to continue improving it and making regular releases. And that's telling everyone it's going to start to look a lot like the ROS1 development process that they're familiar with, which is periodic releases. Each release gets better and gets more features. So we're now on a six-month release cycle for ROS2. We, we did the Bouncy release uh, in the middle of last summer, and we did the Crystal release at the end of last year. With Crystal, I would say that we've got a, a lot of what you would need uh, specifically for mobile robot applications. So we've got the basics of the, of the middleware there. We've got a lot of those tools that we talked about earlier, like Arviz, and a lot of those command line tools are there. Uh, Ross Bag is there, thanks to a great effort by folks at Bosch. The navigation stack that I mentioned earlier uh, is there, thanks to efforts from a lot of folks, especially led by uh, a group at Intel. And so if I think the Crystal release is actually appropriate for people to try out now if they're in an indoor robot domain. And so what I would what I tell people who I talk to about this is, if, especially if you're starting a new project now with a mobile robot, have a look at Crystal and see if it does what you need. If it doesn't, please tell us because we want to meet those needs. Uh, we're now building up to the dashing release, which will be in May this year, and it will have even more features. And so, you know, I think what what it's the, it's incumbent on us to keep rolling features in in order to attract users. We're not going to try to push people over. It's it's it needs to be an attractive move for them. And uh, my expectation is that we'll get more adoption over time. But uh, frankly, in the same way that, you know, I, I started working on player in 1999 and I stopped working on it completely about 10 years ago and it's still being used. I still we still get questions and bug reports. So open source software, frankly, never dies. I, I don't think we'll ever see the whole world go from ROS1 to ROS2, and that's totally fine. To the extent that ROS1 gets the job done for somebody, they should just keep using it. That's, that's, there's no problem with that at all. Um, what, but what I'm hoping is that, especially on the industry side for product and service development, we're going to see a lot of uptake in ROS2, which is just going to lead to more products being offered that are based on this open platform. Mm-hmm. Now, how should our listeners learn more if they're interested about ROS, ROS2, Gazebo? Sure. So there are a lot of resources out there. I would, um, if they are in school, there's a good chance that they've got an opportunity to take a robotics course. And there's a decent chance that in that robotics course, they will probably use ROS. Uh, they might use Gazebo as well. 
there are many books out there on the, the cover Ross and Gazebo. Um, a couple of friends of mine and I co-authored one for O'Reilly a few years ago, but that's one of more than a dozen books that are available. We've got a great set of tutorials and other documentation at Ross.org. And if they really want to get involved in the community, we have online uh, Q&A forums. Ross Discourse is a discussion forum. Ross Answers is a Stack Overflow-like uh, Q&A forum where you can ask questions and get answers from the community. And then finally, I would recommend that the, your listeners consider attending one of our developers' conferences. We do RossCon every year. Uh, this year in 2019, it will be in Macau. But also we've started uh, supporting local Roscons in local languages. So this year, in addition to the one that we'll do in English in Macau, there'll be one done in Japanese in Tokyo and another one done in French in Paris. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And that's the end of today's podcast. As always, simply go to robohub.org forward slash podcast for loads more exciting episodes. And did you know that the Robohub podcast is run by an international team of volunteers who freely give their time? If you enjoy our interviews and would like to support our small team, please check out our Patreon campaign, where you can become a supporter of the podcast from as little as a dollar a month. The money we raise goes straight to producing more exciting new content for you, enabling our interviewers to meet and speak to more researchers, more engineers and more robot enthusiasts, and to cover the latest and greatest from the big international conferences. So to find out more, go to robohub.org forward slash podcast and read up about how you can support our team. We'll be back again in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Open Robotics with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.